Turn with me and your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. And we'll be reading from uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does, not, who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what and they're conflicting to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Well, if you haven't opened there already, make sure you are open there to Romans chapter 2. We're going to spend a lot of time there today. Um, as you can already tell, we have uh, quite a passage this morning. In it, we see um, really a great promise held, held forth before our eyes, a great truth. This truth, though, um, is somewhat of a double-edged sword. It holds out for us a great hope especially in the days that we're currently living in, but it also holds forth before us a great warning. What is the truth? Well, it's the truth um, that you see there on your handout that our God is an impartial judge. Now, how is that a promise? Well, you just think about the days that we live in. Cries for justice. There's this innate longing that we have as a culture, as a society, and, and each of us individually that, that God judge impartially, that wrongs would be righted, that God would, would in all of his judgments always do what is right. And in that, we have a great promise. Injustices will be brought to justice, 
and that gives us a great hope. At the same time, this is a warning, and we're going to find out it's a warning because as we cry out for justice, we're crying out for justice upon us as well in our very lives. And if we were to look honestly, which this passage demands that each and every person and all humanity do, if we look honestly at our lives and cry out for justice, then that's going to deserve a, a just judgment from God, a due penalty to us for our sin. And so this, this passage today is, is holding forth a great promise, but it's also a, a warning, and we ought to heed it carefully this morning. As we think about where we've, we've come so far, uh, we can remember what we talked about last week in verses 18 through 32, the, the second half of chapter 1. Um, last week, we talked about the reality of God's wrath, that his wrath is revealed against unrighteous people. We looked at the reasons for God's wrath, uh, that unrighteous people suppress the truth about God. They don't honor him as God and they worship other gods. And finally, we saw last week the revelation of God's wrath, that God's wrath is revealed presently as he gives people over to their sin. So if you were to look back real quickly at verses 28 and 32, you'd notice a few words here. It says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a, deba a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And verse 32 Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Last week, if we were to, to uh, have a crowd of people that were, were listening to this argument, you would hear um, many amens. And uh, in particular, as you're looking at the book of Romans, who this, the audience was receiving this letter the group that would especially be giving a hearty amen to the fact that there were people who did not acknowledge God, that God would give them over to their dishonorable passions, and that, uh, that not only would they approve those things, but they would practice those things themselves. Those people shouting the amen were the Jews in the crowd. The Jews in the crowd and people like that are happy to give a But today... What's going to happen in this passage is that God's going to turn the tables on those people. God's going to turn the table on the kind of person that uh, likes to point out sins in others while excusing sin in themselves. Suddenly, the, the finger's not going to be on they and them, but the finger's going to be turned and it's going to be on you. Paul is going to trap the Jews today in their sin, and show that the wrath that's going upon all humanity isn't about people out there, but they're a part of that crowd as well. And so if we were to, to just understand what, this what the purpose of this passage was for the original audience, for the Roman church, we'd understand a couple of things. Number one, as this passage landed on the, the Roman church, it was going to convince the Jews that they would not escape God's judgment that they have no excuse whenever they come and have to account for their sin in God's courtroom. But secondly, this was intended to humble Jewish Christians, to humble them that they're not better than their Gentile brothers. And because of, of what we're going to see in this message today, they would stand equally deserving of the wrath of God, just as Gentiles. 
But we don't want this passage to be for people then and there 2,000 years ago. This is for us today. Why does God have us in this room today reading this passage? What What are we supposed to glean from this message? Why does it matter? Well, it's going to have the same effect on us. Number one, today this message is going to convince us that none of us, there is not a single person in this room that will escape the judgment of God. There is not a single person in this room that will have any excuse, any defense when they come before God in his courtroom on that last day. That's our first purpose today. But the second purpose for us Christians today, if that's true that none of us escape and none of us have any excuse, then the reality of this should humble us that we're not better than any other group of Christians in this room. There's no section of this room that we're better than because we deserve the wrath of God just as they. And so the way we're going to see this unfold before our eyes today is that this passage is going to show us three proofs that our God is an impartial judge. Three proofs that our God is an impartial judge. The first proof that we're going to see is that God does not permit a double standard. God, our impartial judge, does not permit a a double standard. Look with me at verses 1 through 5. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." Our first proof that we're trying to see that that God is an impartial judge in these verses is that God does not permit a double standard. And the first way we see that is in verse 1, that hypocritical judges are condemned by their own standard. You can see that there in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, Practice the very same on the Jews from all the they for you. Singular focus there. You have no excuse, O man. Notice all the judgment language in this passage. We should be picturing that we're in a courtroom. Uh, There in verse 1, he says, you have no excuse. You've got no defense before a judge Oh man, that phrase, oh man, it's as though someone's put up on trial. He's he's being tried right now before our very eyes. You have no excuse, every one of you who judges. In this moment, Paul, it's as though Paul has looked to his side and he sees that while he's been used by God to put the world, humanity on trial, he looks to his side and he sees his fellow Jews there with him accusing other people. And he says, wait a minute. What are you doing in the judgment seat? You have no business being up here trying anyone else. And why is that? 
It's because having taken up the position of the judge and start condemning and pointing the finger at other people, the reality is, as verse 1 says, they practice the very same things. They are guilty of the very same things that they're judging other people for. And now look, this isn't just a problem with Jews in first century Rome, is it? This is a problem that's been perpetual for humanity since sin began. It's one of the ways we like to insulate ourselves from our sin. We like to feel better and comfort ourselves and insulate ourselves from the judgment of God by jumping up into God's judgment seat and judging other people. It props ourselves up as though we're above the law, as though we're better than other people. But the problem is, is that the old saying proves true, right? Every time you point the finger at someone else, how's it go? You've got three fingers pointing back at yourself. It's true. As the Jews and as we point out sins in other people, we find out that we are pointing the finger at our very self. Jesus testified to this in Matthew 7. He said, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye? The reality is... God does not permit such a double standard. Hypocritical judges are condemned by their own standard. But the second way we see that God doesn't permit a double standard in these verses are in verses 2 and 3. The reality is this. No one will escape the judgment of God, not even those who judge others. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. He says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You can see what Paul is doing there in verse 2, don't you? You see the key word there is, we know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The Jews were saying, yes, yes, get them, Paul, get them, get them, get them. All of the sins listed in verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1 But the reality was, as they were pointing the finger and condemning all those sins, if they were to be honest and look back at the the history of Israel, verses 18 through 32 were, were subtly pointing at Israel's sin. The way throughout all their history, they were trading in the truth about God that they had received, the knowledge about God that they had received, the mercies of God that they had received. They were trading all of that in for a lie and pursuing their own passions. And you see that there, that the same thing isn't just happening for Israel generally, but for this person on trial as well. Verse 3, do you suppose, oh man, he's up on trial, he's being accused right now, Do you think, oh man, that you will escape the judgment of God? How is it that you could possibly use in yourself the does not insulate you from God judging your sin? And this is pervasive in our culture. This is a way we feel better about the sins that we excuse in the dark is by judging sin in other people. And this is, a, this is something that needs to humble us today in our cultural moment is to realize that this is what's happening all the time. As we're shooting at other people, we're ignoring the realities of our own lives and we should realize that we deserve to be judged. We're not judges excused from judgment looking down on others. 
but we stand underneath the judgment of God. But the third way we're going to see that God doesn't permit a double standard is in this, in verses 4 and 5. While God is merciful, he will judge the unrepentant. Look at with me, verses 4 through 5. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You know this excuse, don't you? This attempt to avoid the wrath of God. It goes something like this. You're saying that I'm under the judgment of God, but wait. God is loving. God is patient. God is kind. And what's the, the inference there? That's leading you to say, if God's loving, patient, and kind, then surely... Surely he would forgive somebody like me. But this passage points out the problem with that attitude. The passage points us to the reality that that, that, that uh, hope that God would surely forgive my sin is a presumption. He, said, he says it there in verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? That attitude... That God, because he's merciful, patient, and kind, will surely overlook my sins, will surely sweep that under the rug. That attitude is called arrogance in this passage. Arrogantly sweeping your sin under the rug, looking at the sin of other, calling justice upon the sins of other people, arrogantly counting on God to give you a pass while you refuse to repent and turn from your own sin That's a presumption. That is arrogance. The reality is, is that what's driving our harsh and critical judgment of other people, a hypocritical spirit ignoring our own sin, what's behind that here is a hard and impenitent heart. A hard heart. The source of our sinful practices, the source of our sin, and the source then of what God is going to ultimately judge. The source of what we saw in verses 18 through 32, where did all that come from? It came from lusts of the heart, these dishonorable passions. Paul says, you're taking advantage of God's patience. We see, see through all, all throughout the scriptures that God is patient in bringing about his judgment. The fact that we're sitting in this room today, that the judgment day has not come yet, that we are all alive and have not faced him yet. If you're not a Christian, the reason you're alive and he is being patient with you is because he desires you to repent today. He's calling you today to turn from your sin. His kindness, his restraint to not bring judgment in this very moment to kill you today because of your sin is because of his kindness. As the scriptures say here, his kindness is to lead you to repentance. Heed his voice today, especially as we walk through the rest of this passage. But what is it today? Credit card debt. Uh, credit card debt is a pervasive problem all over America. Uh, it, the, the amount of debt that's normal in our society is higher than it's ever been. Imagine a family that just keeps swiping that credit card, swiping that card. 
As the, the bills roll in, they try to ignore it. As the calls come, they just, you know, ignore the call, reject the call. As, the, as 30 days pass and 60 days pass and things just seem to build and build and the interest piles up, I just want to suppress the reality that those are there at all. I want to ignore it altogether. That's what's going on for those who continue to this day unrepentant. The debt against God continues to pile up and pile up. And his wrath, the penalty due you for your sin against, against God is piling up, piling up, piling up, and one day you won't be able to ignore it anymore. The creditors will come knocking on the door. God will show up, and judgment day is here. But if you're here today, there's still time. But the question that we should be asking now, especially as we see the end of verse 5, is that the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, what will that be like? What is... What is God's righteous judgment like exactly? Well, that's what these next few verses are going to show us. Verses 6 through 11 show us the reality, which is our second proof that God is an impartial judge, that God judges according to each person's actions. God judges according to each person's actions. Look, at with, look with me at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. We can see an explanation of verse 5 of what God's righteous judgment is in these verses. And we have a summary statement of it there in verse 6 when he says, he will render or he will give a judgment to each one according to his works. He will reward everyone according to his works. In other words, God judges each person's actions as they deserve. And this is what we want, right? We have a phrase in our, uh, in our uh, courts that we say, let the punishment fit the crime, right? Whatever the crime is, whatever is done, whatever the action is in reality, let the punishment be fitting according to that reality. And that's the way that God judges. We notice a couple things. He will render, so he's giving what is deserved. Secondly, we notice to each one, that's the reality that every individual will have to stand and give an account before God. But not only that, to each one points us that there is no section of society that is exempted from judgment. Every section of society will have to give a report to God. And we'll see that even more clear at the end of this passage but finally, it's according to works. What is the criteria of God's judgment? What is the basis of his judgment? What will he inspect and judge you according to? He will judge you according to your works or your actions. The reality is, is that God can't be fooled. He knows the truth. He doesn't need evidence. No one needs it all. 
And so when it's the reality that he will just, based on your perhaps noble birth or your family, your place in society, whether or not you can pay off the judge. Proverbs 24, 12 says, he will not repay man according to his work. Sorry, will he not? It's a question. Will he not repay man according to his work? Psalm 62, 12 says, for you, God, will render to a man according to his work. So we need to look at at uh, two different options here. There's really, you're going to fall in one of two places in God's court. You're either going to be in his favor or you're going to receive his wrath. You're going to be judged as good and he will give you good or you will be judged as evil and he will give you the due penalty for your evil actions. And so let's look at verses 7 and 10 first. This is the reality that to everyone who does good, God will give eternal life. Look at verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now look also at verse 10. He will give glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Uh, These sections of verses, it's kind of in a chiastic structure. It goes A, B, and then it it answers B, and then back to A. So what is A? A is to everyone who does good, God will give eternal life. That's what verse 7 is telling us. If you persistently do what is right, if you are, are stable and consistent and steadfast in obedience... If you live a righteous life before a holy God, if you live in a way that is pleasing before him, then what will he give? Well, he will give what is owed to such a person. He will give, as it says, eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. He has promised to give what is good to those who do what is good. And this is a fair rendering. He gives what is good to those who are good. That is what we call a righteous judgment. Now we're all a little bit uncomfortable, aren't we? If you know the good news of the gospel, you know that there's a little bit of a problem there in verses 7 and 10. And what is the problem? The problem is something that Paul hasn't gotten to yet in his overall argument in Romans. The the argument is this that little section of society of those who do what is righteous before God, who live holy before him. I don't know who has this passage later, but I'm letting the secret out. That's an empty set of people. There is no one who actually has completed verses 7 and 10. No one is patient in well-doing, seeking for glory, honor, and immortality. No one uh, has fulfilled this requirement of seeking after what is good. The reality is, is that this is an empty set. But to set up the hypothetical, it's, it's more than hypothetical because there's one who has done it. Just think about it. If someone did what was righteous throughout their entire life, if they lived in obedience to God, it would be right. God ought to reward such a person, and he would. He has. The problem is, is that none of us, 
No person in all history except Jesus, the Messiah, has ever fulfilled such requirements. But, as we'll see later, through faith in him, we get in on that, right, on that good benefit. We get in on that good promise. The second reality God will give our self-seeking, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So we see these summary terms for those who do evil. They're self-seeking. They do not obey the truth. They obey unrighteousness. They do evil. These are summary terms for all who do evil works, for all who are decreed by God to, to have done unrighteous acts. And according to one, chapter 1, verse 32, those who practice such things deserve to die. These, these verses, what do they promise for those who live such a life? They promise wrath and fury, tribulation and distress. This is what I was talking about at the beginning. This is that double-edged sword. This is the fearful reality that according to chapter 1, according to chapter 3, this is where, this captures all of humanity, Jew or Gentile. No matter what section of society you come from, you fall in verses 8 and 9 as those who do evil and therefore deserve wrath and fury. We sang a song a few moments ago. Without hope, without rest. All eternity. This is the fearful reality of God's eternal judgment for all those who rebel against him. Every single one of us in this room deserve, according to our actions, wrath and fury, tribulation and distress for a God on his judgment seat to turn out upon us this wrath that we've accumulated, the due penalty due us for our sins, and to offend such a righteous God in such a, an awful way as we have of exchanging glory for a lie, of choosing to worship creature rather than creator, we deserve death, and not just momentary, but for the rest of eternity. This is a, a very harsh reality, but it's one that is inescapable. Verse 11 tells us one more way that God judges according to each person's actions. Verse 11 tells us something very important. It says, God shows no partiality. This is huge. The, the Roman courts in that day were notorious for judging not according to someone's actions, but judging according to someone's nobility. That phrase, partiality, it's, it, it has this impression of God doesn't judge according to the face. He has no regard for the face, meaning it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what your family's like, what section of society, what your skin color is, how much money you have. The reality is, whether, as you can see in verse 9 and 10, Jew first, also the Greek, for everyone, doesn't matter who you are, God will judge you impartially according to what you deserve. And so this is the reality. There's going to be no sweet-talking God at the judgment day. There's going to be no strong-arming God from judging you. 
There's going to be no paying God off. There's, going to, there's not going to be any good old boy club that's going to get you out of judgment. The reality is we have an impartial God who does not see as man sees, but he sees beyond the appearance of things to the reality of the heart. And that should frighten every single person who has ever lived. Thirdly, this third proof that God is an impartial judge is this. God's law condemns us all. Here's the the question that's being asked by the audience. The reality that a special way Jews shown some sort of special favor, won't they get favoritism on the last day? And we might be asking that as well. Isn't there anybody that gets kind of a special pass? Won't I, if I, you know, kind of weigh out my good and my bad and do some good things here, won't I get a special pass in the end? Well, the answer is is given decisively here in verses 12 through 16, that God's law condemns all of us, and it shows God's impartiality. Look with me at verses 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. We have a summary statement in verse 12. This is going to to be the summary statement that we unpack through the rest of the passage. The summary statement, the answer to our question is this. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. God's law condemns all of us. In regards to the Jews, we're going to unpack this. Jews are not acquitted because they possess the law. Just because God has given them the Mosaic law, just because God has revealed himself to them in a unique unique way, does not mean that they will be given a pass. Instead, they will be judged by the law that they have received. We see this at the um, second half of verse 12, when he says, all who have sinned under the law, will be judged by the law. He says in verse 13, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. What does he mean? Not the hearers of the law. Well, you know that the Jews went into the synagogue and they heard, this, they heard every single Sabbath, the, the Mosaic law, the law, the prophets, the Torah, they heard it read every single Sabbath. They heard it. They heard preaching, explanation of it week after week after week. And the point here is, they are not counted righteous by God. They're not in his his favor simply because they hear the law taught every Sabbath. Instead, as God judges justly, it's the doers of the law who are justified. The Jews are expected not only to hear the law, but the law demands that they do it. 
They must be obedient to what they have received. And so as you go back and track your way through what we've seen so far, you see phrases that should now begin to pop as you look at them. Verse 18 says that people in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived. The reality is, is that those were subtle hints that who has been revealed, who has God revealed himself more to than, to, to than the Jews? No one's received more revelation than them. No one's received the truth like they have, but they've suppressed it and they have not obeyed it. The fact that the Jews who God has made a covenant with the fact that that's who they are, it does not exempt them from trial. John the Baptist warned the Jews of this, didn't he? He said, don't say to yourselves that Abraham escaped the judgment of God, just are not going to be acquitted just because they lacked the law. Instead, they're going to be judged by their guilty consciences. There's going to be a couple of things that you see here. Because the, Jew, because the Gentiles didn't receive the law, they might be able to raise a defense saying, well, wait a minute. We didn't get revelation. We didn't get knowledge. We didn't know your will. You didn't reveal yourself to us like you did to the Jews. That, that defense is going to be uh, unpacked here. But then secondly, as we behold the Gentiles' obedience to the law God has placed in their hearts to some measure, that's going to accuse the Jews all the more. You see that happen all throughout the New Testament. Look at the way these Gentiles are obeying God, yet you Jews ignore. It will be a subtle um, attack against the Jews once again. So let's look at verses 14 through 16. We'll see how the law still condemns the Gentiles. Look at verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So we, we see that we're unpacking verse 12 now. Verse 12, the very first portion. All who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Just because we're not Jews and we didn't receive the law, that's not going to exempt us from God's judgment. It says uh, here in verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. What does he mean by by nature do what the law requires? He means this, God designed all of us, and we know this to be true, don't we? Inspect your heart and tell me if you, if you don't think this is true. God has designed all of us with a sense of his character and what he expects of us, doesn't he? That's what he said in chapter 1, that he has uh, made himself clearly known through what he has made. And here's, uh, according to chapter 1, verse 20, it says that they are without excuse. The knowledge that we have the nature that God has given to us leaves us in a place where we are condemned by what we know. The knowledge we have is sufficient to condemn us. We see this 
uh, in this phrase that the, the Gentiles are a law to themselves even though they don't have a law. How does that work? He explains that in verse 15. The Gentiles show the work of the law written on their hearts. Big question here. What is the work of the law? What is the intended effect of the law? To skip forward into chapter 3, the result of the law is to show the knowledge of sin. That's what the, the, that's what the law does for the Jews. It exposes sin. And if God has written on all of our hearts a certain law, the effect of that law on our hearts is to show us that we're guilty. God has given us, according to this verse, a conscience that bears witness. And how does it bear witness? What does your conscience say about you? Does your conscience say that you are free of guilt? Free of sin? Righteous before God? Deserving to be rewarded for your good deeds? I highly doubt it. If your conscience is anything like mine, it is painfully aware of the ways that you have offended God's design. This fret up a society that evil and that there's good for ourselves. So whether it's our own guilty conscience accusing us, or it's even the law that our society makes, we all stand guilty. And that's the reality here. God has so wired our hearts with a conscience, aware of his presence, that when we consider a holy and righteous God, it all leaves us thinking about the hidden things of our hearts. And that's the fearful reality that verse 16 points to. The result of us being a law to ourselves and having a conscience is that our thoughts accuse and excuse us and we're afraid of verse 16 that a judgment day is coming. A day when God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Friends, consider your hearts for just a moment. Is it just me or are you painfully aware that there are hidden things that if brought before God would leave you totally exposed, totally liable to his judgment? If we're honest, we deserve this due penalty for our sin. And if we try to hope in a possible escape that maybe we can wiggle out of it because we're part of the right social class or the right group of people, there's no escape. Or perhaps we might be able to point to our actions. Friends, God is a just judge. He's an impartial judge. He's not just going to let sin slide. Today we've seen three proofs that our God is an impartial judge. The first proof was that God doesn't permit a double standard. The second is that God judges according to each person's actions. And third, God's law condemns us all. And so we saw at the beginning that the purpose of this sermon is supposed to, to convince us that none of us will escape God's judgment, that there is no ex excuse for sin in, our, in, our, in God's courtroom. And so in light of that reality, let me just uh, remind you of a few things. First, let me ask you, are you insulating yourself from the threat of God's judgment by pointing your finger at other sinners in the room? Are you looking out at society and pointing out 
the sin and other people that's so much worse than you in such a way that it's distracting you from looking into the realities of your own heart. Is that where your hope is? That there are other people out there worse than you? That's not going to stand before an impartial judge. Secondly, let me ask you, are you hoping in mere leniency from God's judgment? Like, what's your hope before a, a, a God, when you stand before God in his courtroom? Is it that God will be kind? That he's a loving God and he'll forgive? Is that it? Perhaps God's loving enough to overlook your sin and let you off the hook? Are you just hoping and getting an exception? I want to remind you, if, if wherever you are in this, of the parable of Jesus that Jesus gave about the tax collector and the religious leader. He told this story of uh, one day when, when two men were coming up to the temple to worship. He said, one man comes in and he begins in his worship to present to God all of the good things that he's done. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there. Oh God, I thank you that I always give you the tithes that I'm supposed to. Oh God, I, always, I thank you that I'm always offering to you what is pleasing in your sight. On the other hand, there was a man who stayed far away from, from the courts where, where you, you worship. He stayed far away and he wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he's just on his face. That religious leader on one hand and the tax collector, sinful, pleading for mercy, having nothing in his hands to offer. When those two men went home that day, Jesus said, only one of those men went home righteous that day. And it was the tax collector. This should remind us that the only right response when we review, when we, when we have in view the judgment of God, his impartial nature, the only right response for us is to come to him in repentance. He will in the last day expose everything that's in the dark unless we've come to him first to expose it before him ourselves. To say, I have nothing to hold before you, but I have one hope. That you, Lord, would look upon me in mercy. And because of one man who entered your courts in holiness, who obeyed you perfectly with perfect steadfast and patience and well-doing, who deserved eternal life from you, because of him offering himself as a sacrifice, taking my penalty upon him, his own back because of what he's done to be once and for all vindicated by you saying, yes, you are righteous. You deserve to, to live eternally and to be raised from the dead. If we come with only that as our hope, that trust in what Christ has done on the cross and his death and resurrection, we can be righteous before a holy God. That's our only hope. And we ought to be convinced of that today by this passage. Second, this passage is supposed to humble us. Christians, if you're in this room and you're wondering, what does all this have to do with me? This should humble us. 
We are not better than any person in this room. If you have a haughty spirit today, an arrogant spirit, if you've been pointing at the sin in other people and it's made you feel better about yourself as a Christian, the reality is this, you deserved the wrath of God just as they. The reality, according to this passage, is that all stand condemned without without exception and no excuses. But the reality also is that all who, who through faith come before God, faith in Jesus, all don't stand condemned anymore, but all are justified through faith. And so the result of this kind of humility, that that's the wrath I deserve, is that who can point the finger anymore? Who can possibly think that they're better than anyone else? Which group of Christian Christians are the best Christians? We all got into this thing by grace. How can we hold ourselves up as better than anyone else? So the result is this. We stop judging one another and we start helping one another. We investigate our own lives for sin more frequently than we're investigating the lives of people around us for sin. We stop spending our lives together, our time together, accusing one another, and we start spending our time and our energy praying with and praying for one another. Friends, will you pray with me? Oh, Father, we need this passage far more than we understand. And today we've only scratched the surface of the glories that are here. Father, the realities that are in this passage are weighty. That our judgment of God is sweet. Power that saves Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor. Thank you that we have such a sweet gospel. Father, would you cause this passage to convince all of us that the only escape from your judgment is to trust in the one who endured it in the place of all who would believe. And Lord, for those of us where that is our trust, for those of us whose hope is there, Oh Lord, I pray that we would walk a life of continual repentance. That we would not be proud or arrogant toward one another, but that we would humbly love one another. Oh Lord, I pray that this good news would be applied by your spirit in our lives and would be worked out in our midst on a daily basis. Thank you for this good news. We were without hope, but you've provided it for us in Christ. And for that, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.